this morning we begin a new sermon series uh, that will last over the next several weeks titled, Here I Stand. And uh, this sermon series title serves as uh, a way of, of constantly helping us to evaluate and consider um, two things. One, um, who is the person and work of Jesus and what is he's standing upon in contrast to who we are and where are we standing. Um, Church family, I am convinced that, I I believe that all of our sermons that we preach have eternal significance, but as I've been uh, wrestling over the last several weeks, uh, knowing that this was coming, um, and even more so as that intensity has grown even in the last seven days, Um, have really wrestled and believed uh, wholeheartedly um, that today, beginning today and over the next several weeks, is is very monumental in in the life of Mission Church. As we consider this Jesus, who he is and where he is standing, and in comparison, in contrast to to where you and I are. And so I'm going to ask you this morning, I'm going to ask that the Holy Spirit would actually do something that we are not prone to do. We are prone towards busyness. We are prone towards distraction. Um, Even on a Sunday morning gathering uh, like this. And and yet, um, as I am often encouraged by uh, you holding your Bibles, uh, you following along with me, you journaling, all those sorts of things. Um, but literally, if those things are a distraction to you this morning, it is, much more, it is much more important for you to hang on every word um, than it is for you to have good notes today. Um, kids, if you're here with us, uh, young people, young adults, um, that as you are as well easily distracted, and I think that's not all your, always your fault. We have created generations upon generations that are in constant need of entertainment. I'm going to ask you to, as well, I'm going to ask that the Holy Spirit would just really help us um, to focus in on the severity of the warning um, that Jesus gives the church of Laodicea today. And in, in retrospect or in reflection of that, um, that I believe that he has given to you and I as well. So today, as we look and, and kick off this new sermon series called Here I Stand, um, we're going to particularly r- reflect on the character and nature of Jesus as a reformer. October is a celebration every month of the reformation of the church that happened in, in or began in the early 1500s. And uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that as in the coming weeks. But um, October 31st marks what we call the, the kind of penultimate of that or the climax of that is, is on Halloween. But, but it parallels with a Christian kind of holiday, if you will, uh, called Reformation Day. And you don't have to know what that is as of right now. I'm going to talk more about that actually next week. Um, But one of the things that I think that we can fall into the trap of of being misled by is that that Jesus has always been and is a reformer. That's not to lessen what happened um, during the period known as the Reformation, uh, but that Jesus in his incarnation, in his mission, 
has at work been at work at reforming. It's, it's not just when we say a new creation, that new creation is a, a reforming of something that has lost its form and it's bringing it back to its original intent. And this is what Jesus is doing in humanity. This is what Jesus is doing in the salvific process is that he is, he is not just simply making us from like human into this superhero expression or into a different animal of his creation or those sorts of things, but rather he is taking what is humanity that has become animalistic and making us human in him once again. And in this, we, we see that Jesus as the reformer stands on certain principles and truths that if we are Christians ourselves should also find ourselves standing in. And so today as we dive into, as we kick off this, this sermon series called Here I Stand, we're going to look at this idea that Jesus is, is wanting and is in the process that he is, he is calling us to reform. He is calling us to a new or continual reformation within our hearts, lives, and church. In this passage, in the book of Revelation, I know that all of you were hoping when you found out I was preaching on Revelation that I was going to pull out charts, kind of tell you when this is going to happen, uh, when this is all going down. Uh, but I want you to know that I take a more historical approach um, to many of the passages found in the book of Revelation, specifically there's first few chapters, as we often forget, this was a historical book written to seven specific churches. Does it have implications for us? Yes. Is it for us? Yes. But we can often want to look to the end times expressions and missing the context of the book of Revelation. So I don't have any charts today. I don't know if we get sucked up or not. Okay, no, no rapture talk here. If the rapture does happen, you can have these clothes if you're left here. No jokes like that or anything. Well, I guess I just gave a joke like that. Um, so today we're going to be focusing specifically um, as, as John writes through the inspiration and revelation of Jesus to him, that he writes these letters to these seven specific churches, and, and he kind of nails each one of them based on their particular context. And so in the church that the, the letter that Paul writes to the church of Laodicea, it it's, starts out here in verse 14, and the angel of the church in Laodicea write, we need to understand some things about this church. See, Laodicea was a, a glamorous place to work and live. Through its location, through its hard work, through its innovation, uh, the citizens there were, were really wealthy. And therefore, since the citizens were wealthy, that also meant that the church there was wealthy. Its, its membership in their own personal lives were wealthy. And so the church was wealthy. It was known and, and benefited from its, its great wealth and prosperity. Think about this. They had great jobs. Uh, they had a stable government. They had entertainment and lived pretty comfortable lifestyle. See, Laodicea was, was known for its great wealth. Primarily three things archaeology and history tells us is that there was a huge gold exchange there. They were a great banking city. 
Um, large amounts of gold were found there, financial records, all these sorts of things. So they, there was great economy inside of this place. Also, with their innova- innovation, um, there was a, a, like a medical center there. There was high levels of education, even to the point where they were able to create salves or, or, or these different ointments that one could place upon their eyes and, and help with um, eye irritation. Some even said it would cure blindness. On the third thing, it was a high place of fashion. Um, because of all of the mineral-rich land, and mineral, ri- and therefore, since the, the, the land was filled with minerals, the water was filled with minerals. And uh, again, many of these people were farmers, they were shepherds. And what was interesting is that the sheep there, um, because of what they ate and what they drank, it turned their wool black. This was very, very uncommon. And so within Laodicea, it became a very high fashionable place as this particular dyed wool, or it wasn't dyed, it was naturally dyed, uh, to this black or even sometimes purplish, that everybody wanted it. That it was the, the Armani, that it was, it was the high fashionable, high um, just understanding of these things that just really made Laodicea an interesting and great place to live. There was, again, great wealth, great jobs, um, lots of entertainment, beautiful shops, scenery, marble things everywhere, and uh, that they had great medical care and also this manufacturing and clothing. They were so innovative because there was uh, a major problem, or one of the only problems that they could find out in Laodicea was actually a water issue. Um, see, Laodicea was kind of far away from a water source, and in their own personal intellect and ability, um, they created something called pipelines that literally they would take, um, there was a, a city up north um, that was known for its hot springs, and so people would go there for this kind of natural soothing and jacuzzi-like places, and then uh, Colossae was was to, the, I believe, the west of Laodicea, and it was known for its cold springs and so in that they developed a pipeline from both of those places and from a a, a nearby river that literally fed water into this city. These were really, really smart, smart people. See, we have a tendency to think that ancient people were dumb and they weren't. They were extremely intelligent, okay? And, And such is true about the people here at Laodicea. So if these things are taking place outside of the city or within the city, then they're also influencing the church itself. This this place was so wealthy that literally it was wiped out by an earthquake and the Caesar came and said, hey, we want to help you with like um, some, some care. We want to help you rebuild Laodicea. And, and this place who was owned by the, the Roman government, the Laodiceans decided and looked at their own government and said, we don't need your help. We've got the money to rebuild ourselves. These are wealthy people. Okay, They're turning away the welfare of the government because we've got this. We can handle this. And so this is happening to the city, but it's also, like I said, is happening within the church. This was the kind of church where these people, they had it all together. This was the kind of church that you would probably listen to their podcasts or read their pastor's book. It was a a church that the people loved. 
And yet, where much is given, much is expected. And out of the seven letters here to kick off the book of Revelation, out of the seven churches, um, Jesus will often commend a church and tell them, man, this is really good about what's happening inside this church. And then Jesus will turn and say, but I have this against you. Out of these seven churches and each one of these letters that is sent to these churches, um, Laodicea is the only church that Jesus addressed where he doesn't commend them or encourage them in any way. They've got it all together. They've got all this wealth. They've got all these, this stuff. And yet Jesus doesn't commend them. He doesn't say, man, this is awesome about your church. But rather, he rebukes them. He reproves them over and over and over again inside of this letter. Church family, out of all the churches mentioned, I'm convinced that the one that sounds the most like the American church is the church at Laodicea. I believe that if there was any of these letters, though there are tendencies in each one of these letters that we could find ourselves, yes. But the overarching letter that I believe that God, if he was writing specifically to the general church, can there be exceptions to this rule? Yes. And I want you to know this. Everyone in America believes that they are an exception to this rule. But if Jesus was writing a similar letter to you and I, the American church, it would sound much like the church at Laodicea. This is extremely serious this morning. Yes, there is a scale within the American lifestyle, and yes, the scale of wealth even in America, but also in the church. However, compared to the rest of the world, everyone living in America is in the 1% wealthiest people on the planet. And I would suggest that this is the hardest place in the world to truly see our desperate condition and therefore need for Jesus. See, in Laodicea, and I would argue in America, Christianity has become everything but Christian. Let's look at this church. He goes on here and he says in verse 15, I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. See, as I mentioned, the only real issue within the the, the kind of um, city polity and and just the lifestyle of this city was an issue with their waters. As I mentioned, that there was a hot springs to the north, which people would travel to to visit that for, for medical help, for relaxation. There were cold springs in another city. And so as they were piping this along, which was, again, highly intellectual and innovative, 
But because of all of the minerals found inside of the waters, and in particular inside the ground, as it that water traveled from these places for miles and miles and miles, it did two things. The hot water from uh, Aropolis, I think is where it's from, uh, by the time that it, it got to Laodicea, it had become lukewarm. And the cold water found in Colossae, which is refreshing, as it had made its way to the city of Laodicea, guess what it had found itself to be? It had found itself to be lukewarm. But also as that water, that fresh hot water and that fresh cold water, as it, it traveled, not only did its temperature change, but it also began to pick up all of the minerals and the sediment within the land and in the water, literally to this point that you can look this up online and you can see the piping that still exists, and inside of it, it just looks like huge amounts of calcium deposits. So that by the time that it got to this very wealthy city, the water itself was disgusting to drink. Growing up, my best friend, um, they had sulfur water. Have you ever had sulfur water in your house? Okay. It smelt bad. You had to brush your teeth with that. That's all they had. They had sulfur water. And it just had this pungent smell. It was a very definitive taste. Like every time you drank a glass of water, it, it tastes like you were drinking garbage. And this is very similar to what was taking place inside of this city structure. They, they had major problems with this as it gathered its environment. And once it reached there, it was useful for some things, but what it was primarily, it was unuseful. You did not want to drink this. You did not want to cook with this. It was bad. So Jesus looks at this context of this city and he speaks directly into it. And he said, you, you're neither cold nor hot, but, but that you were either cold or hot. Jesus is not saying here, as it is often translated by some, I wish that you were burning hot for me. It would be better for you to be burning hot and zealous for me or that your heart would be cold and the deepest, darkest, wretched atheist on the planet. That is often how this is translated, but I would commend to you or suggest to you I think that the original intention here is not that, that one is super on fire for Jesus and that, that one is not, and it's better for you to be one of those, but, but rather that this is an issue of usefulness, that Jesus is saying both cold and hot are great, that they are both useful. Be both of those. Being cold and refreshing for Jesus, being that living water, is a good thing. And simultaneously, being hot and filled with passion and, and zeal for Jesus, if you want to call that white hot passion for Jesus, that that is also a good thing. But what is a, a bad thing is that these people are neither hot and cold for Jesus. They are lukewarm. They are stagnant. This is more about a statement of faithfulness and usefulness in the church. Again, think of all the things that you can use hot water for. Think about all the things that you can use cold water for. And yet, the Bible says, Jesus says of this church, you are lukewarm. 
See, lukewarm is often slow moving, even worse, like I said, it's stagnant. Now, I'm a coffee connoisseur. I'm not a coffee snob because I'll drink your Folgers. Okay? And I love iced coffee in the summertime. I think it's absolutely delicious. It's refreshing. I absolutely love it. And in the wintertime, I don't know if there's anything best than, than sitting out in kind of a, you know, a, a chilly morning sipping some coffee, hot coffee. But if you're a coffee connoisseur like me, and I'm, I'm, I'm between five and ten cups a day kind of coffee consumer. And by the, by the, the end of this, what it, what's crazy about it is if you've ever done this before, is that if you've poured a cup of hot coffee, and, and you've kind of forgotten about it, and you went back to it all of a sudden, and you've sipped on that, and it's gotten room temperature. It's disgusting. It is nasty. It's awful. Simultaneously, if you get an iced coffee and you get busy, and that stuff gets watered down, and it just becomes a, a milky mess if you put cream in it, especially if you like like a hot or an iced mocha or a white mocha, iced white mocha. Mm, now we're talking, people. All right? It's going to be in heaven. Y'all just wait. All right? Say Spencer's for Jesus. Both of those things are, are disgusting. One is watered down. The other is, is lukewarm. And, and neither one of them are, are, are good and useful. It still has the same components within it. And yet it has, it has lost its saltiness. It has lost its meaning. It has lost its way. It is disgusting. And yet in verse 16, what does Jesus say? This is a very hard, hard graphic warning this morning. Jesus says of this church, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Jesus says of this church, you make me want to throw up. Two times in scripture that kind of make, well there's lots of scriptures that make me squirm. But two that kind of make me a little sick at the stomach, are two graphic word pictures describing God's response to this type of false worship of him. One is found in the, the last book of the Old Testament. It's called Mal Malachi. When he punishes the priests by rubbing the dung of the sacrificial animals all over their faces. And then second, in the last book of the New Testament, the, the book of Revelation, when when Jesus says, you make me so sick, I want to vomit. Those two things within the human life, I don't know if there's much more disgusting than those two things. And every parent in here knows what I'm talking about. In the middle of your night, when your child is crying out because they, they didn't even attempt to go to the bathroom to get sick. And they just decided that the bedroom the bed in particular, was a great place to relieve themselves. And I want you to get this. I don't want to spend too much time here. I know people got queasy stomachs. But do you understand this, this totally destroys an idea of this prim and proper Jesus that Jesus is your homeboy, that Jesus is your buddy here, but that Jesus is taking this very seriously as he speaks to a church and says, you make me want to throw up. 
When I look at your false worship, when I look at your lukewarmness, it makes me sick that there is something inside of me when I look at you, that you reek of death, that you smell of death, that you taste of death, that as you have traveled through this thing called life, that you have lost your coolness, that you have lost your heat, that you have picked up the minerals in the environment of the culture, by the time that it gets to the spigot and the throne room of heaven, it literally makes me sick. Church, you make me sick. This is what Jesus says to this church. When he looks at the church with all their money, all their comfort, all their ease, he wants to vomit them out of his mouth. Like many of us, we would never walk around verbally making these claims, but our attitudes and our actions reflect the contrary. See, their wealth, their freedom, their opportunity had caused a lack of dependency on God. They were not desperate for him and his provision. There was no need to seek him out for daily bread. Why? Because their wealth afforded them the abundance of bread. Brothers and sisters, this is what we call in theological circles practical atheism. This is practical atheism. Within the realm of practical atheism, one may profess Jesus is God. One may go to church, one may be moral, and yet in the day-to-day of their lives, there is, they're, they're living as if there is no God. For instance, when God says love your neighbor, he, he doesn't mean all of your neighbors. When God says forgive, he doesn't mean those who have really, really hurt you. When God says be generous and, and give things away and just give to where it's laughable, He's not meaning at the expense of my own comfort and ease. When Jesus says, read and study and know me through the word, um, the practical atheist says, well, I, I get that on Sundays from the preacher. Or when he says, go and make disciples, well, he, he only really means that for the super spiritual, for the, for the preachers or, 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 or the ministers or people like Miss Cynthia. He, he only means it for, you know, really older, mature, Bible-believing, you know, kind of the weird old holy rollers. He, he doesn't mean that for everyone. See, practical atheists profess to love Jesus, and yet the fruit of their lives is the opposite. It's cultural Christianity, and it's not serious. One of the influencers of my life and faith is a man named R.C. Sproul, and this is what he says about practical atheism. What is deadly to the church is when the external forms of religion are maintained while their substance is discarded. The external continue, but man becomes the central thrust of devotion as the attention of religious concern shifts away from the man's devotion to God. The man's devotion to the man. Bypassing God, the ethic of Christ, continues in a superficial way, having been ripped from its supernatural, transcendent, and divine foundation. See, brothers and sisters, it is is possible for the church to believe all of the right things and yet do the wrong things. As I've said it over and over and will continue to pump into all of us, your true actions will always follow your true beliefs, not your stated ones. 
I'm convinced, and I believe that there is evidence to prove this because of what is happening in the spread of Christianity in such places like Iran, which you heard from Pastor Justin a few weeks ago, that it is possible that a Muslim is less deceived than a cultural American Christian. Why? I say that because a Muslim knows they're not Christian. While many Americans who are, have lost are, are lost in, and, and are blind to the reality that, that they are lost. The, the hardest people to reach are those who don't believe they need to be. While many Americans struggle with these concepts. This, this week, God afforded me the opportunity to share the gospel after one of my classes um, I said something in my class that kind of shocked some people. And so after the class was uh, my leadership class, a bunch of students met me out in the hallway because there was another class coming in. And, and God afforded me in the public square in the hallway as we're all dodging people in their backpacks to share the gospel with these six students. And one of the statements that I made to them is this, is that I believe you as an American citizen, one of the reasons why you're having a hard time determining the gospel of Jesus Christ is because few of you have ever met a Christian. Do you get that? Do you get the seriousness of that statement? As I sit in a college university week after week after week where many of them are professing to have a relationship with Jesus when the, the, what should be just got written burdened by this morning is, is the fact that though they are professing with their mouth that they believe that Jesus is Lord, they are, they are living as though He is not. That, that means that they are lost. The reason why there's so much confusion in the American church is because so many in the American church, like in Laodicea, are not Christians. They are not followers of Jesus. This is what has left the church at Laodicea. They're lukewarm. They're comfortable. They're complacent. They have no sense of urgency in their lives for the gospel and in their own lives, let alone the spreading of the gospel to the ends of the earth. See, the church in Laodicea, and I would commend to you the church in America, is filled with false converts. In Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 12, it says, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the men who are complacent, those who say in the hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. See, complacency believes that it leads you to believe that, that one, God isn't really who God is, and that God isn't actively involved. The great pastor, theologian John Stott says of this, Perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the 20th century church than this. It describes vividly the respectful, sentimental, 
nominal, skin-deep religiosity, which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath in religion. And why do they do this in Laodicea? Why do we do this in America? And that is because we are greatly deceived. See, they make God want to vomit they, they, they make God want to vomit him, them out of their mouth because they're, they're completely convinced that they have it all together. In, in verse 17, look, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. The word Laodicea, does anybody know what it means? It means people rule. a great title, fitting title for this city and for our sinful nature. See, in Laodicea, for you say, again, they were known for their great booming economy. They were known for their, their, their ability to help people with their eyesight and, and manufacturing this, this great black clothing for people. See, uh, religious activity had, had, had left them being very moral, and yet it had left them being spiritually blind. Think about this. I've got a great job. I've got a great place to live. I've got a 401k. I've got a good marriage. I've got a good kids. My, my retirement plan is good. I've got insurance. I mean, thanks be to God for Walmart pickup for groceries. Please understand that these in and of themselves are not bad. But our temptation for every one of us is that we often take good gifts of God's grace and then make them God. And that's bad. See, we don't really cling in America and rely on God for daily bread because we are living overweight lives of consumption and can simply go online and have anything shipped to our doorstep. Instead of prayers of provision, we simply click and, and, and put what we need to in a cart. See, we're self-sufficient little gods finding security in our education, our jobs, our, our calendars, and our plans. And yet, who was it that said that it is hard for a rich person to enter into heaven? Jesus said that. Jesus the church that had the most wealth, the most comfort, the most opportunity to engage others and support the missionary efforts throughout the world is the same church that had become lazy, deceived, and dead. Sin had left us greatly deformed, and yet Jesus has come and is coming to reform us. He says to them, you exchange golden riches, and, and yet you're spiritually bankrupt. Come to me for true wealth. People come to you for healing, specifically for their sight, and yet you are blind. Come to me and truly see. You are wearing the finest of, of earthly garments, and yet, like the emperor's new clothes, you are naked. 
And notice that Jesus is, is, is in this. He's saying, come to me and I'll clothe you in my own righteousness. What you're wearing is this black clothing. But I want you to know, if you are truly in me, you get a, a new robe of pure white. What you knew you truly cannot get from yourself. You cannot generate on your own. You make me want to puke. You poor, blind, and naked people. But I want to come to you. I want to provide for you living water. I want to give you wealth beyond your wildest dreams. I want to give you true sight. And I want to clothe you in the covering of my blood. Jesus is saying all of this to the church. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17. For it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. See, man, we love to focus on the depravity of the world around us. And I want, I want to lovingly tell you something. You need to get over it. You know why? Because the world is doing what they are naturally going to do. Why are we surprised? They can't help it. It's like looking at a lion and being ticked off because he's eating a gazelle. Why does he do it? He's a, a lion. And that's what people apart from Jesus do. And yet so many, the enemy can often deceive us to cause us to constantly want to be looking to our peripheral, to be noticing what everybody else is doing and whatever's happening in the world. And yet the scripture says, and Jesus doesn't write this letter to the world. He's writing it to those whose, whose outside sign has his name on it. And he says, that's where judgment begins. It begins in the house of the Lord. It begins with those who are professing to know me, who are professing to love me, who are professing these things, and yet they are far from me. And yet knowing all of this about the church, let's keep reading. What does Jesus do? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined with fire so that, that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and, and, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove, I, 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 I discipline. Be, so be zealous and repent. So Jesus looks at the false church. He looks at a counterfeit bride. And he still loves them enough to, to say, I'm going to offer you all of these things. I, I love you enough to, to call you to repentance. I, I love you enough to, to discipline because the true nature of God's wrath is, is not when he disciplines us. You need to get this. It's not when he disciplines us, but rather when he turns us over to do whatever we want to do. Do you see the difference? Read Romans chapter 1. He turns them over to the desires of their hearts. That's the wrath of God. Him humbling you through suffering isn't wrath. It's his love. But when he turns you over and says, oh, you want that big boy? Knock yourself out. He'll let you knock yourself out. That's the wrath of God. It's saying, have at it. 
Imagine hell being a place where every desire of your sinful nature is legal for everyone. There's no withholding your nature. Because God is, you know, globally doing that. We're not as bad as we could be, even though we're totally depraved. But being in a place where God is, is, is not withholding any of the desires of all of humanity for all of time, that's hell. For all of eternity. Yet Jesus, one of the most famous verses in the Bible, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. Thing is, it's become popular and it's probably, I'm not going to say that this is wrong, but the primary explanation of how this verse is used is, is often used poorly or not in, in the main way in which Jesus is staying here. How many of you guys have ever heard an evangelism? You come to the end of the evangelistic thing and you say, well, Jesus is standing outside of the door of your heart, brother or sister, friend. And all you got to do is welcome Jesus into your heart, which is not really seen in Scripture. Can there be some hints of truth there? Yes. But I want you to understand the bigger scene of what's taking place here. I believe that Reformed theology, the doctrines of grace, if you want to call them that, what we hold to here at Mission Church, was not something new that started in the Reformation. I don't care about being a Reformed Christian near as much as I'm concerned about being faithfully biblical or faithful to the biblical truths. So I believe that I'm safe in saying this, and I'll, I'll welcome the, the discourse or the conversation, but I believe that the church at Laodicea was a quote-unquote reformed church because I believe that they believed in the sovereignty of God and in and, and total depravity and, and divine election and, and the atonement of Christ. I believe that the early church believed all of those things. So it, it, is, it is possible, and I believe 100% true, to say that the Laodicean church was a quote-unquote reformed church in its doctrinal beliefs, but it was not reformed in its hearts. You get the picture here. We love the images of Jesus standing outside. He's usually white. He's got like blonde hair and blue eyes. And he's, he's all, it's like all like glowing, right? You've seen these pictures probably at your grandma's house. And he's standing outside of a door. Anybody seen those pictures? And there's usually like a heart or something on the door. The picture is, get this, that all across the ancient times, all across America this morning, possibly this one, that all this religious activity is taking place. Here my hope is found. We're singing the songs. We're praying the prayers. We're standing up when the scripture is being read. We've got kids serving, or people serving our kids' ministry, hopefully. Right? We're going to take communion. 
right? We're going to fellowship with each other. We're going to get some hugs this morning. We're going to love on each other. We're going to try to encourage each other that all of this religious Christianity stuff that it's all taking place in ancient history and in churches all throughout the world today as people are, man, getting excited for Jesus, not realizing he's outside, like he's not even present in the people. And he's knocking on the door saying, hey, does, does anyone not recognize like I'm not there? That I'm not in there. That I'm not in your hearts. That I, I, I'm not in the gathering of the people. And yet, man, you're taking up offerings. You got missionaries coming up telling us all the things that's happening. You got all these plans. You got a church calendar. You've got all of these things. Maybe it's in, the, in your own life, man. You got little dallies of, of things your grandma knitted about the Lord is your shepherd and, you know, all these sorts of things. You got Christian t shirts and Christian music and, and all these books about Jesus. And yet, Jesus is saying, hey, hello, I'm I'm not even there. This week, again, I've talked about this guy before, Joe Imel, Twitter, if you have an account, follow him. All he does is a guy here in town, he listens to the scanner for 911, and then he just writes it on Twitter as they say it. And this was a tweet this week, Bowling Green, Kentucky. Someone called 911 in this great city of ours, Because a group of people have been in a nearby church for more than three hours and have been making loud noises and turning the lights on and off. Hashtag revival. You're supposed to laugh, Cash. Thank you. My first reading of that was how ridiculous. One, that somebody would call 911 about that. But then the God began to work about, is, is that us? And maybe we're not getting as loud as these people. We're all getting really excited about something, even if we're doing it introvertedly. I know the Bible. Every time somebody tells me they know about the Bible, I cringe. Because I don't. Because every time I open it, I realize how much I did not know of God. It is the never-ending story. I know some of it, but I do not know it. And even more so, the goal isn't to know information. The goal is transformation. It's, It's reformation of the heart. And yet God is, is standing out here Sunday after Sunday that people are gathering and yet they're lost. It's a, it's a masquerade. If, 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 and I, I just wonder if anyone should be excited in, in our worship gathering about the person and work of Jesus. Shouldn't it be those who, who believe and, and, and profess to know the doctrines of grace? And yet many times we gather and this is the most uncelebrative moment in my week. And we claim we love the word. 
Yet it causes no reformation. It causes no transformation. We're lukewarm. See, Christianity has become our habit. It's become our routine. It's, there's a lack of interest. It's really a side dish to my main course of life. The, the, there are songs to be sung. There are scripture to be read. There are friendships to be made. There are prayers to be prayed. And yet there's little to no transformation. Why? Because none of us are noticing that Jesus isn't even present. And the scary thing about the current state of the American church is that, we're, that, that there is not the fear of dying for our faith, but, but rather... The fact that very few are living for their faith. And why can Jesus say these hard things? Why can Jesus make these statements? Why can Jesus have the authority to diagnose our true conditions of our hearts and, and call us to repentance, zeal and passion and repentance? He can do this because of who he is. And this passage tells us who he is at the very beginning of it. Verse 14. When he says, the words of the amen. What does amen mean? It means the truth. It's the affirmation of the truth. It's the absolute truth. It's not just something we say after a pastor said something. Well, at other churches, when the pastor says something true, people say amen. Not this one. I don't want to confuse us. But in reality, Jesus is saying that I am the Amen, that I am the affirmation of the truth. So I can call you to reformation. I can speak boldly into you because of who I am. And I am the truth. He can say this. Why? Because he is the faithful and true witness. He is the validation of God Almighty. Thirdly, that he is the beginning of all creation. This doesn't mean that Jesus is a created thing. It means that Jesus is the creator. And so we see in this passage, because of Jesus' nature, because of his character, he is the absolute truth. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the beginning of all creation. And he can rightly, in all of his goodness and righteousness, look at you and I and say, you are lukewarm. You are blind. You are naked. You are poor. And when God says it, we better listen. See, brothers and sisters, we can become passionate about morals. We can become passionate about the church and not be passionate about Jesus. He ends this passage by saying, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches this morning. Mission Church, do you have ears. Do you have ears? Or is your heart still one of stone? One of my greatest fears this morning, I had a pastor tell me one time, or, or I heard him say one time, that every time that he's given a, a, a time to speak, a lot of time at these conferences, there's always a clock down there. And that he often, while he's preaching, as he watches that time go down, it's like he pretends within his mind, what, is the count, what if that is the countdown of my life? While I'm preaching, that this is the last thing. Mission Church, I want you to hear me, because I'm... I, I, one of the greatest 
fears that I have as one of your pastors is that we will hear such a truth as this and be quick to say these are all of these other places and all these other people and it will just simply ricochet off of us having no penetration of our own hearts. But I want you to know what is keeping me up and has kept me up for now seven years is the reality that though I believe that Mission Church in many ways is founded on great biblical truth is that we are lost. That means you. That can mean me. And the reason why none of us are standing up and once again, 90... uh, Nailing the thesis to the door of our churches is because when you look around and compare ourselves to other churches, everyone else is kind of in the same boat. So it looks right. It looks right. What keeps me up, what woke me up at two something this this morning, well before my alarm could could even go off, was was the realization that the, my fear that many of the people I love and care about are what that they're going to hell, including members of this church. That's the reality of what Jesus, and I know that this is heavy this morning, but if I have to stand before God, I want to, I want to stand before him. And as, 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 as this was handed from Jesus to John to say, go tell my people this, as, as Jesus handed it to John and as it's been passed down through history and has landed on my lap this morning, brothers and sisters, friends, mission church, you desperately need Jesus. And many of you are completely deceived in thinking that you know a Christ, but he is a Christ of your own imagination. May Jesus come into your life today. May you repent of your sin. May there not be any question that you have a relationship with Jesus. Hell is real, but the holiness and almighty God himself in his character and nature is well worth the the opportunity that you have been given this morning that many are not given to give your life to Jesus and for there never to be a question on whether or not you are our Christian. This pastor in, in, that runs in some circles that I run in, Scott Sauls, he's in Nashville. He once said this in a sermon. If, if, if you had been accused of being a Christian and were standing trial, would be, there be enough evidence to con- convict you? Would there be enough? Would there be enough? I don't think this is a question if we're lukewarm. I think the reality of what the Spirit is saying to us this morning is we are. We are. My fear for us, the third fear, is that we'll walk out of here having today, having been warned by the Word of God, have even go, I can see where I'm lukewarm. And yet nothing be different in our lives. Which only perpetuates the lukewarmness. You want to know if Mission Church is cold and hot for Jesus? Then what you will see continually, not once, but continually, It's a daily repentance. 
that leads to daily rejoicing and a life of obedience. If you're content that you don't disciple someone, I want you to know you're lukewarm. If you've become content that you've never been in the baptistry with someone that you've led to Jesus, because that's for other people, I want you to know that's lukewarmness. If you can go days on end and not have a healthy diet of God's word, That's lukewarmness. It's all signs of lukewarmness. Well, if there's not a change, I want you to know, understand me, what it ultimately reveals is lostness. So I'm, not, I'm not talking about the, the general ebbs and flows, but I'm talking about a consistent trajectory away, not from a religious activity and moral, moral compatibility, But is there evidence to convict you if we were all watching our lives that you have a relationship with Jesus? And I think the best thing to do, I think the most faithful thing for us to do after hearing a text like this today is to wallow in that.